If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I've entitled the message, A Higher Heart. I want to talk about Christian nobility for a moment. Now, I know that that's not popular because we don't, uh, we don't have a monarchy in, the, uh, uh, in America, and so it's a, a different perspective to have, a thought, have thoughts of nobility. But really, in, in all of the economy of God in Christendom, we, we have alone, as believers in Jesus Christ, a nobility that has separated us. Not for us to be snooty or to be snobbish, uh, but to, be, uh, to understand our position. And understanding that position then becomes a, a, a way in which nobility exerts itself. I'm going to read to you a, a quote I found, or a, it's a piece of story, I guess, about uh, a man named um, John Kronstadt. Now, John Kronstadt was a priest, but in his time in the, in the 19th century in, in, Russia, in Russia, in the Orthodox Church, he was, he was a priest. And he was, it was so weird at that time because alcohol abuse had taken over the entire country. Uh, they literally were, were producing alcohol to kind of uh, anesthetize the nation. And there was a, a huge um, kind of an interning in the Russian Orthodox Church where priests weren't really going out to help anyone. They were more or less staying there and letting people come to them. And so this John uh, Kronstadt was a priest of that, of that Russian Orthodox order. And he, would compel, he was compelled by love to go out into the streets. And people would say that he would, he would go to the worst drunks in the city and lift them up out of the gutter in the mornings after, after a drunken tirade. And he would, he would cradle them in his own arms. And they were foul-smelling. And, and he would say, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. That was his statement to them. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Boy, that is something that is needed in our day and age. When we have profaned the holy and said that the holy things are, are, are profaned us, are useless, are, are as, as dirt is to us. We've taken the holy things and made them plain. And it's a shame. Because we were meant for more. We were meant for more. Uh, there's a quote uh, by C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. Um, he says this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. It is the, in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to, our, to ours as, a, as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we, with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. We don't think of people in those terms. And it is unfortunate that's why we need a higher heart. And that's the title of today's message. If you've made your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read these ten, first 10 verses out of this passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. 
If so be ye have tasted, the Lord is gracious. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. But unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders have disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious word that gives us a higher heart a more noble countenance. Help us, O oh God, to see our nobility face to face. Through the blood of Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. And we ask you, Lord, to help us see that. Not that we might become high and mighty and lifted up in our own pride and our own arrogance, but that we might be lifted up in the name of Jesus to a higher plane. Establish our feet upon a rock, Lord, the rock, the rock of ages. Help us, O God. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as we begin today, let's talk about Christian nobility for a moment. If you ever wanted to obtain or ever thought to obtain nobility in a, in a Christian world, you have to look to the Scriptures and find out what God says that nobility looks like. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that does just that. This is Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Here's what it says. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now verse 11 is the key. Here we go. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. So I want to give you a couple of things here to help you understand your Christian nobility. There are two parts here that you need in order for God to look at you and say, that's Christian nobility. Here they are. First, they were eager to receive the word. Eager to receive the word. I want to challenge you with something. When you come to church... I want you to try to get as many distractions away from you as you can. Now, I understand children. We have a desire to have children learn the Word of God. And as we teach them to sit in church and be a part of us, we understand that they're going to learn at the feet of their mothers and fathers here in the church. I'm thankful for that. So that you can take home. And when they ask you, Mom, Dad, what does Christian nobility look like? What was the pastor talking about today? You can turn to this passage and go, I've got two things for you. You need to be ready to receive the Word of God. And secondly, they search the Scriptures to be sure that the, thing, of the things they heard. To make sure these things are so. So I want to challenge you as parents to set your children on a path of nobility in the Christian life. Be, come to church and be ready to receive the Word. And be diligent in studying it so that you can see that those things are so. It's not enough for you just to stand on your by and by and, and, and trust the word of your pastor. I want you to trust me because I want you to know that I, I've poured my life into studying the word of God and knowing the word of God. But I'm going to tell you, it makes more sense and it is the diligent and noble thing to do to study the scriptures so that you can be sure of the things that I'm telling you and that the word of God tells you. Okay? Your proposition for today, if you had to have one for this message in particular, is that practical holiness is in part knowing whom, by whom we have been saved. That's the easy part. Once you come to that place of realization 
where you know by whom you have been saved, nobility comes, yes, but also a higher heart comes. Much of Christendom today has been co-opted. It's been co-opted by a, a social movement, social justice and things of the like. And, and I repudiate that. I, I can utterly repudiate that. It makes no sense for us to go out and say we're going to help people by giving them this and giving them that and they deserve this and they deserve that. Let me tell you what they deserve. What every one of us deserves is hell. What we need to give them is the gospel, not the social gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give them the gospel of Jesus Christ and it lifts a man. It takes a man from the gutter to glory. From the gutter to glory. That's what the gospel can do. Today I want to challenge you to have a higher heart. To be Christian in your Christian walk noble again. I told you about John Cronstadt. I love the, the saying. This is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Can I tell you that that's the message of the gospel? People were not meant to live as dogs in the street. They were not meant to live as, as paupers. They were meant to live as, as sons of the king. That's what Christianity does that's different than every other religion on the planet. God reaches down and says, I'm going to lift the sinner out of his sin and put him on a path of righteousness. For my name's sake, I will do that. That's Christianity. That's having a higher heart. But what does it mean for us to walk with a higher heart? Well, we talked a little bit about it last week, holiness. And this passage goes on to expound on holiness and the practicalities of it. I, uh, I found a, uh, another quote, I guess, by a, a man named John Brown. Hmm. Uh, a Scottish theologian, he says, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Now let me read that to you one more time because so you can have it. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities, it consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Now, what does that tell us first? Well, John Brown writes that so we understand that holiness is not something that you aspire to in the sweet by and by. Because in the, in the days of, uh, of his time in the 19th century, there was a, a movement that says, you couldn't be holy because only God is holy. So therefore, it has to be something that happens after you die and after you go on. Or it has to happen in, in, in these big endeavors that we do. Holiness is, is then become a social problem, a social gospel. He says, no, it's, doing as God, it's thinking as God thinks and doing as God wills. It's no more complicated than that. C.S. Lewis writes uh, in, in his book, uh, Letters to an American Lady, he says, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. You ever met someone who just exudes holiness? I mean, they walk in the room and you just know those people, that person knows God. There's no doubt about it. He walks with God or she walks with God and she, she spends time with God and you know that, that they have. You just know. That's the real thing. It's irresistible. So I want to give you three things today. Taking notes, 
By the way, if you have a bulletin, there's a place on the back to take notes. I'd encourage you to do so. First point this morning, you need to see the desires of a higher heart. Not complicated. It's going to be an easy sermon for you. The desires of a higher heart. Look in verse 1 of our passage. Here's what it says. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now you read it all in those three verses. And the desire of the higher heart ought to be the first desire is to cast away sin in all of its forms. Well, let's look at the ones that are mentioned here. In our passage of Scripture, it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice. Now, we'll start with malice. Malice is the easy one. Malice is evil. Malice is wickedness, badness, if you will. So the Bible tells us explicitly to lay aside malice or wickedness. Now, that gives us some options, doesn't it? A lot of options. What, what things around you or in you or are near you that are wicked? If there are those things that are wicked, the Bible tells us, therefore, to lay aside those things. Here's, here's what's interesting. If you go back to last week's sermon for just a moment, I want to go right up here, just skip, skip back a few verses. Here's what it says in verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. You see, we can know the difference between the badness of the world, the wickedness, and the pureness. How do we get there? What do we do? Well, once we recognize what it looks like, we can lay it aside. Put it aside. That is the desire that we all should have as believers in Jesus Christ. Those things that are wicked, we should desire in our hearts to put them away. Get them away from us. Now, not just wickedness and badness, but also deceit. That's guile, by the way. Guile is deceit or trickery. That shouldn't even, it'd even be an option for Christians. We ought to put away those things that guile us or cause us to do guile. Either way, deceit or trickery. The third one is hypocrisies, play acting. Now this one's a little hard for people because there's a, a conflict here for us. Hypocrisies or play acting, sometimes people who are genuine in their faith are genuine in their um, uh, behaviors sometimes are seen as hypocrites. Let me explain. Uh, I recently got to preview a movie uh, about Mr. Rogers. And one of the first questions that the interviewer in the movie was doing to interview Mr. Rogers, and, and this, this movie's coming out in the fall. It's an it's a interesting movie, so. Uh, but I, I, got to, I got the chance to preview it the other night. And one of the first questions that he asked him he says, what do you like when you're not Mr. Rogers? Or something like that. And Tom Hanks, who's playing Mr. Rogers in the movie, looked at him and said, I, I don't understand the question. Ideally, the Christian should have no idea what people are talking about when they call us a hypocrite. Because here's what most people think of church people. Church people. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, by the way. They think that we are one way at church and another way at home or another way out in the world. And let me just explain to you something. If you, there is a difference between the way you behave yourself in the house of God and with the things of God than you do outside the church and the things of God, 
then you are a hypocrite. And you need to repent of that and, be, and get right with God. Because if, you, if you're the same as at church as, as, the, as you are at the house, as you are everywhere else, then at least you're not play-acting. Now, the rub becomes, how do you behave yourself in the house of God? I've got a sermon for that, by the way, if you ever want to hear that. It's, on, uh, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But let's, let's set that aside for a moment. The hypocrisy with which we are uh, accused of ought to be shameful to us to hear that. That if someone says to us, well, you're just a hypocrite because you say the things of God on one hand, but you do the things of the world, you're the hypocrite. You're the play actor. You're playing at church. Fourth thing is envies, phanthos, ill, ill will or jealousy. Now, jealousy is an interesting one because we think of ill will and jealousy not as the same thing, but they really are. When you become jealous of someone in the sense of wishing them ill will, I remember, I don't know what show it was back in the 80s or something. A woman was standing there talking to her husband or her boyfriend, whatever, and this woman comes in wearing the same shirt she does with the same hairstyle. And the phrase that came out of her mouth was, I hate her. Because apparently she thought she looked better in the top and then better with her hairstyle. I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, though, if jealousies are really, I don't know, are they something that, that beat us up all the time? Are we jealous of others and wish ill will on others? If so, we need to lay it aside. We lay aside, the verse says, all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies. And the last one, evil speakings. Now, evil speakings is backbiting or defamation. It's whenever you talk poorly about somebody uh, behind their back. That's something that Christians just ought not to be about doing. Now, I have known churches, people in those churches, who have gone and, and done that backbiting thing. And I've encouraged them to stop. I told them I wasn't going to listen to it to their backbiting, their gossip, their defamation of others. In fact, I went so far as in one church, I, I said, I tell you what, I know you've obviously got this problem with this person. You come into my office. I want you to, I'll bring them in as well. You write down everything that you, you've got to say. Put it on this piece of paper. We'll invite both of you into my office and you can tell them all about it. And not one person in the church ever did. Well, they had plenty to say. They didn't want to say it to their face. You see, it's the desire of the higher heart to put away those things. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there with me. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 for me. So you can see it in print and see what the Word of God says. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which, is, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Now pay attention. When Paul has to say this to the church at Ephesus, that means that some have probably come along and spoken vain words and deceived many. Peter talks about them in Second Peter. We'll learn about that later. Here's what he says. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Here's what happens. Someone comes along and says it doesn't matter 
if you, uh, you know, are an idolater. It doesn't matter if you're this. It doesn't matter if you're that. It doesn't matter if you go out here and you do this sin or that sin. None of that matters. And they're vain deceivers. They're here to deceive you. Because it does matter. It matters to God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Here's what happens. Those people who continue on in their sin, the wrath of God comes upon them. So don't let anyone deceive you with vain words. Verse 7 says, Be ye not partake, therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now let's go back to the hypocrisy issue. You were darkness, but now you're made light. Can I tell you that sometimes Satan puts, his, puts things in your way to make you go back into darkness again and, and make you want to? But your desire, because of who you are in Jesus Christ, ought to motivate you to higher things. It ought to push you to go after the higher things. It says here, verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says, okay, you were darkness, now you're light. So now you're expected to walk in the light. You're expected to behave yourself righteously. It's not complicated. It's not even hard. It just sometimes is inconvenient for us. Ah, oh, but we move on. Verse 9, For the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, it is the natural production of the Holy Spirit of God in you, pay attention to it, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You see, it ought to be the desire for us to walk in light, right? It ought to be that desire for us to have a higher heart. That desire that we should have to put away sin. Verse 10, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So he gives you the positive first in verse 10, proving what's acceptable unto the Lord. So, how do you prove what's acceptable to the Lord? Well, the verse before it tells us that the Spirit has given you fruit that's produced in you in all righteousness, goodness, and truth. Verse 12 says, or excuse me, verse 11 is the negative. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now remember what it said in our passage? Lay aside says lay aside those other works, the works of malice and the works of hypocrisy and all of that. Here it's telling us very explicitly, have no fellowship. It's the same, same idea. Lay aside means to separate. No fellowship means to separate. It's not complicated. But it, it works in a different dimension of it. Fellowshipping means a, a, a fellowship. You don't go with them. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Then it says, but rather reprove them. What does it mean to reprove the works of darkness? That means you've got to push back. That means when, when that filthy language is seen or heard in, 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 a, in a group, you push back. You push back and say, no, we don't need to say that. We don't need to do that. Verse 12, for it is a shame to even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. We don't talk about shame anymore. Now, let's get to a more positive note on the desires of a higher heart. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So why does Peter and Paul, by the way, why do they both tell us in different places that we ought to <coughs> go away from those things, have no fellowship with those things, lay them aside, those things, which are evil. Well, because we're supposed to. 
mainstay Christianity in America today says, no, you don't have to do away with your bad things. You can come as you are. Let me explain to you, when, when Jesus says that you should come to him, you should come to him in repentance, trusting him in faith to do a work in you that changes your very nature. You can't come to Christ and become a Christian and stay in your sins. Can't. It's not possible. Now, can you do sin sometimes? Yes. But is it your nature now, if you've become born again, to sin and to go off into sin? No. You ought to have a higher heart. You ought to have a heart that chases down heavenly things. Let me give you an example of that in Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And that's the trouble. We tend to think on the bad things. Salacious news reports sell. The bad things sell. We want to know all about the bad things all the time. But I'm wondering how many of us would want to hear the news if it was all good news? What if you paid attention to the, to the uh, 6 o'clock news next week and every single headline that they put out for 30 minutes was nothing but great news? Good news all over the place. Fireman saves a cat from a tree, you know, that kind of stuff. We always like the animal best interest stories. We don't worry about how the cat got there because the evil dog chased him up the tree, right? Or do we? You see, the point is, is, is we need to think on the good things rather than the bad things. We need to lay aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies, envyings, and evil speakings. All of it. Put it aside. It's funny. That ought to be the desire of the higher heart. The second desire of the higher heart in our passage we found is the desire for pure biblical teaching. Take a, take a gander back in our passage. It says, as newborn babes, and there's a comma there, and it's interesting. The, word, the next word is desire, the sincere milk of the word. The desire right there ought to be, as, as newborn babes in the word, is to desire the sincere milk of the word. It ought to be the desire of those with a higher heart that the biblical, pure biblical teaching ought to be the primo thing. It ought to be the best thing since sliced bread for us. When we listen to those preachers on the radio, we listen to the pastor in the church or whatever, we're desiring and seeking pure biblical teaching rather than fluff and stuff. You know what fluff and stuff is? It's like, a, it's like churches have uh, uh, pastors with Oreo cookies. It's the stuff in the middle. Tastes good, but it's worthless. I love my double stuffed cookies, right? If left alone, I would eat the whole package. I got up late last night. My wife had made my favorite chocolate chip and oatmeal cookies. And I held myself off at eating just two. I wanted to eat more. Got up. My, uh, I, I was sitting there kind of just flipping through the channels and whatnot. And my daughter comes in. She says, Dad, what are you doing? It's almost midnight. I said, I'm eating cookies. But I'm only eating two. Fluffing stuff in a, in a church setting, in a church teaching and preaching session, is when all they do is tickle your ears. All they do is, is tell you how good a person you really are. That's not what this is for Peter. Peter's not telling the folks over in, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia good things so that they can uh, feel good about themselves so much. It's to remind them that they are set apart. And that's what the rest of this sermon talks about, is being set apart and being holy. So the desire for pure biblical teaching, though, ought to be that desire of the higher heart. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. My wife and I were talking the other day about doctrine in the church. and One of the questions that often arises in the church is, is, Pastor, why do you teach on doctrine so hard? I think our people know doctrine so well. Can I tell you that the problem with, if I don't teach doctrine, what happens is, is we, we forget what we believe. You say, well, no, we don't. We just, we just don't need to be reminded of it all the time. Hang on there for a second. How did you memorize your multiplication tables? Now, I know there's new math. Please don't, please don't give me new math. I'm, I, I don't need new math. I don't need, uh, you know, what's it called, the, the, the tree diagram, the tree, the, I don't need all that. When we were in the fourth grade, I was sitting in Mr. Schull's math class, and we were taught to memorize multiplication tables. You know how we were taught? You write them out, and you write them out, and you write them out. And then if you forget, write them out again. And one more time, write them out. I, me- I memorized the entire multiplication tables very quickly. I had a, a little system. I would write out all of my multiplication tables, right? I would also, for a dollar, write your multiplication tables out. I actually got busted for writing out other people's multiplication tables because at recess I was writing them out for them. I would sit, they had little concrete cylinders that you used to play in. I would sit there with a pad of paper, note paper and write them out as fast as I could, the ones we were supposed to have for that week. And I was giving them, because math class was after lunch, and I was giving them to, back to the people, and what, or to the kids, and what was end up happening was they got hand swats, and I got double. But I memorized my multiplication tables. Can I tell you that the same thing applies here for doctrine? Why do we preach and teach believers' baptism? Over and over again, we teach and preach it. Well, because we want you to understand that there are people out there who don't practice believer's baptism. They practice infant baptism. Why do we teach and preach about uh, the local church? Because there's plenty of places out there that never teach about the local church. They teach about a quote-unquote universal invisible church. Can I just tell you, we, we repeat things so that you know, so that you understand it, so that you believe. We show you in Scripture time and time again. It's, it's almost tedious. People think we're, we're legalistic because we, we follow the teachings of Scripture. Can I tell you the difference between legalism and righteousness here? It's simple. Knowing and believing. It's, it's not enough for you to just be legalistic. I'm not going to be so legalistic to say that if you, don't, if you don't know every single doctrine, you can't be a member of the church. That's legalism. But as a member of the church, you ought to know the doctrines that that church espouses. You ought to have a desire for pure biblical teaching, and a lot of it is doctrine. Sure, you'll get eschatology, you'll get ecclesiology, Christology, angelology, you'll get all of it. But it only comes from pure biblical teaching. Let me read to you that passage again from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. You want to know the reason that we beat doctrine a little bit here? Is because we don't want them to forget. We don't want you to forget the pure, unadulterated Word of God. We don't want you to turn from the truth to fables. How many of you have ever heard the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness? Yeah. Your mother probably told it to you, your grandmother. It is found nowhere in Scripture. But I had a lady in the church one time who swore down, she knew where that passage of Scripture was. And I said, if you'll find it, I'll, I'll announce it in front of the congregation and tell them I was wrong and you were right. She hunted for weeks looking for that. It was nowhere in there. 
Here's the thing. We will believe fables before we believe the Word of God. Why? Fables are easier. The Word of God is truth. The truth will set you free, but you know most of us don't want to be free. We want to be bound again. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. 2 Timothy 1.13, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Jesus, Christ Jesus. Paul and Peter and everybody tells us you need to have a desire for the truth of the Word of God. In our passage, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. If so be, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. You see, here's the thing. If you have tasted, if you have become a believer in Jesus Christ, then it is the Word of God that helps you grow. If you stay a babe in Jesus Christ, it's because you're not feasting on the Word of God. You start out on the easy things of salvation and, 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 and all of that. You start out on the easy things, and then you get into the deeper and deeper and deeper. Pretty soon you're swimming in the ocean of, of all of God's theology. And can I tell you that if you don't learn how to swim before you get to the deep end, you'll never understand the deep end. And not that you can understand it fully anyway, but you come closer to it. All right. Gosh, I'm going to give you point number two, and we'll have to come back next week. I may get through only about half of point number two. Point number two this afternoon is the design of a higher heart. The design of a higher heart. Now, this isn't complicated. This one probably for me is, is the easier one. Verse 4 says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now what is that telling us? The temple of the living God is you. It's a nice building. It's a place where the church meets, the people meet. The people of God then are set apart as temples of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And that, you, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now this isn't hard real here. We just need to understand it. Verse 4 tells us, To whom coming as unto a living stone. Now, as, how many of you have ever seen a living stone? Now, not Mr. Livingstone, but a living stone. Well, we don't actually see those. None of them see stones that actually talk or walk or whatever. And, and don't count the ones in the desert that move in the middle of the night that nobody knows how they're moving. Okay, Shifting sands and winds, blowing around all the time. But here's the thing. A living stone is what Christ is said to be. Now, it's, it's interesting that they, they put it to us as a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. When you think of Christ and you think of how He has made us in His image, not just physically, but now spiritually we've been made to be like Christ, chosen of God. In fact, verse 5 tells us, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. God's got such plans for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You see, at the time of your salvation, God begins doing a work. We call it sanctification. Now, we called it justification in the beginning because God justifies us in His sight. But then the moment after that, after that initial salvation begins the work of sanctification for us. We are starting to become like Christ. 
more and more. The understanding that we have is that we've been made sons and daughters of the King by the blood of Jesus Christ. So now it, it, is, it is that time of learning and that time of sanctification, if you will. It's funny. Princes have to be trained to be princes. Did you know that? If a prince or a princess is not properly trained in how to be a prince or a princess, they will be an abuser of mankind. No different than anybody else. But if you are trained in what royalty looks like, in what nobility looks like, into what you're supposed to be, that becomes something else entirely. You can become sanctified in Christ. You are being sanctified in Christ. You're being made a little more like Him each time. Can I tell you that if that's not happening for you, two things. One, <clears throat> if it's not happening to you, you need to make sure that you're, you're saved first. That's the premier thing. Make sure that you've been born again by the, by the Spirit of our God and by His shed blood on the cross. Make sure your election. Second, if you're sure of your election, if you're sure that you've been made new by the blood of Jesus, then get into the Word of God. Let it be the principles and the things that you read and know and put into your heart that, that change you, that help you train yourself to be a child of the King. <coughs> Excuse me. Now let me read to you a passage from 2 Corinthians 6. Because there are the right things to train yourself with and the wrong things. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, in the beginning with God, Adam walked in the garden. And he, it says he walked with God. Do you know that that didn't happen again until Jesus, where Jesus walked with people? Oh, you say, well, God shows up in different places in the Old Testament. Yeah, but not like he was with Adam. There's a relationship that happens. God walked with Adam in the garden, not because they were equal, but because there was an understanding God was God and Adam was created. And there was no sin to separate them. Once sin came in, there was a separation and there was no more walking with God in that way. I know that there's exceptions to that. There's Enoch who walked with God and was no more. I understand. But when it truly means to walk with God is what we understand now as salvation. Not just salvation in the sense of saving the soul, but, but that, that redeeming has come back. And God can now fellowship again because the fellowship's been made right again. It's like, um, it's like your best friend in, in school. One day you got in a fight about something. And, and, and there was a separation for a time. And you come back together and you, you feel, feel, figure out kind of what was going on. And you apologize and everything is good again. Remember that feeling? Uh, maybe none of you have experienced that and you're still at odds with that friend. I suggest you go back and make it right now if you can. But here's the thing. When that fellowship got restored, do you remember all the things that you used to do? I mean, that you, you, know, you spend time with him and, and you, you like that friendship and love that friendship. That's how it is with God now. The design of a higher heart is to have fellowship with God that way. Because you are his temple. He lives inside you. Not in the, not in the physical place of your heart, but in, in that part that's been redeemed. The Holy Spirit of God dwells inside you. Do you know that the Old Testament saints would have loved to have had the Holy Spirit like we have the Holy Spirit today? Sealed with that Holy Spirit, they could do amazing things in their faith. 
That's the design of a higher heart. First, the living temple. Second, the stone, Christ, that God has selected. Verse 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. I, I need to go on. Let me read one more part here. It says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. Can I tell you that the great thing about the heart that God has designed for you, that higher heart, is the fact that there is a precious stone of God that you can recognize. Other men have rejected Him. They've dismissed Him out of hand, said He's not the Messiah, He's not the truth, but you have believed. And those who believe have a design of a higher heart. You have the ability then to know Him in a much more intimate way. My prayer is that you will come to know Him better. Better through the study of the Word of God and through your time with Him in prayer. Let's stand. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll go home tonight. We'll come back next week and we'll finish up this series, okay? This section. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your, your grace that has been given to us. We're thankful for Your the heart that you've given us, that higher heart. Help us have the desires of the higher heart to chase after you and to know the things of God and to put away the things of evil. Help us also, Lord, to understand the design that you've given us so that we might be in fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, for that. If we can understand that, we'd be miles ahead. Help us, O oh God, as we learn a little bit more about what it means to be noble, the noble man in Christ Jesus. Forgive us where we fail you, guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.